for those of us who have been in this class before, we know that we're going to be talking about money today. So, uh, important subject. Uh, let's see, Victor. Yes, sir. Would you mind praying for us before we get started? That'd be great. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the blessings of this Thanksgiving season, and pray that you prepare us for Advent. Pray especially for Donnie this morning that uh, you would speak your word, and that our hearts would be open. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so we've been discussing in this class um, how our faith as Christians should impact and inform our daily lives in uh, various different areas. We've been talking about how grace doesn't leave us where it finds us, uh, and we're grateful for that, how it, grace moves us. And it moves us when it first touches us in salvation, very certainly, but then grace um, also moves us um, when uh, it touches us in the sanctification process of our lives as um, the Holy Spirit transforms us by chipping off those pieces of us that aren't Christ-like. Um, and we remember a couple of weeks ago we had a chisel, we had a little film about a chisel and how sometimes that, that chipping off process can um, be a little bit painful, but it's necessary. Um, today we're going to touch on an area that I think affects every single living, breathing person and certainly every single uh, living, breathing Christian. You know, um, for those of you who uh, were members of this church when Paul Zoll used to preach, I used to love the way he would, by the end of the sermon, he was going to get everybody. You know, he was going to afflict everybody. He was going to talk about, you know, the mother-in-law or the father-in-law or the difficult child or the or the career that didn't turn out like he wanted or the physical ailment. I mean, by the time he got through, you know, I, there was not a, a single person uh, that couldn't... Uh, uh, that couldn't, uh, the printer's going off behind me here. Does anybody have a wireless or trying to print something out? <laughs> um, anyway, by the time he was through, he got, he, he really connected everybody. And I always thought that it'd be a cruel thing, but the way you could do that without having to go through so many different categories is if you just talked about money and finances, because uh, it impacts everybody. You would have to go through the whole, the whole process. But um, we're going to talk about that today uh, because um, it's uh, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, every denomination, it does impact us. Uh, and we know that it's important to us. If you stop and think about it for a minute, it's important to us in our daily lives. You just take it for granted. Uh, we think about it. We plan around it. We work for it. We save it. Um, it helps provide for our basic needs. It helps provide for times of celebration and joy. And it can be used for such a good, uh, uh, such good use in this world for those who are on the margins, uh, for care and compassion for them. Um, money's important. Um, scripture doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. What does Scripture say about money in that passage? The love of money is the root of all evil. Um, and quite frankly, I think it's too easy for us to allow money to become an unspoken idol um, in our lives. And remember, an idol is anything that gets between us and God. I want to say this. I thought about this in church this morning. I'm going to say it. I, I, I wanted to do this at a dinner party with a, a supper club that we had that was very close. We've been around for a long time. And I said, you know, in our society now, Jane, we'll talk about anything. We're real close. We, we talk about some things that, you know, my grandparents never would have talked about, right? It's just things are out in the open. I said, let's have an experiment around dinner table tonight. I'll ask everybody. Let's everybody just say what they made last year. <laughs> See how that goes. You know, what is it? What is it? that You know, we'll talk about everything, but we won't talk about that. 
and yet one of the the, 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 the parade magazines that people look to look forward to all year is the one that shows what everybody's salary is, average salary. Isn't it funny? So money somehow has this, this tie to us, and I think that's why Scripture has so much to say about money. Uh, it's one of the most mentioned topics in the Bible, as you do know. Um, so when we're discussing how grace moves us to become more like Christ, uh, I don't think we can ignore this area. And I think it's a... Uh, I think of it this way, when Christ called us to, to follow him, uh, when Christ told us to pick up our cross and follow him, he did not say, but leave your money behind. Okay, So we're following him, and we've got to deal with this. So to, to take a little bit of the edge off it, I'm going to show a clip um, from a movie from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, let me just set it up. Um, three characters in this scene. This is a scene towards the end of the movie. Uh, and the three characters are, of course, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones. Everybody knows who he is. Sean Connery in this clip plays his father. Um, and the third person is a woman. And the character's name in the movie is Dr. Elsa Schneider. She is an Austrian historian who has joined Indiana Jones and his father. And they have been searching for the entire movie for the Holy Grail, the Cup of Christ. And they've gotten it now. And this is the scene we're going to see. One thing to keep in mind that's important as we look through this is there's been an, there's been an ongoing underlying theme in this movie. Uh, and it has been, Jane, don't want to show my mail. Oh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the far right icon at the bottom on the tray. Uh, the one thing I didn't touch. Yeah, and, and when we want the little arrow to the right, just, okay. just go. Um, don't go yet. All right, this underlying theme that you need to know, because we'll show this clip twice, uh, is that there's been this thing going back and forth between Sean Connery, Indiana's father, and, and Harrison Ford, and that is he calls him Junior. The follow, father calls him Junior. If you've seen the movie, you remember, it just irritates uh, Indiana Jones to no end. Always calls him Junior, so just keep that in mind. Let's play this clip.
Okay, so what's going on here? What's the uh, what is the what what's the hope of the? Uh, pay no attention to my able assistant over there. Uh, what what is the lore of the uh, uh, of the Grail? What is the uh, the cup of Christ supposed to represent? Everlasting life, right? It's the uh, ultimate in control for a human. That's what it represents. And if you think about it, it's not everlasting life up in this cloud somewhere. It's, ever, it's, it's that the person that has the grail has everlasting life here. It's the fountain of youth. You don't die and you stay here and everybody else around you dies, which would be a terrible, frankly, if you think about it, it would be a terrible world. Um, and, and remember, Indiana's holding on to her gloved hand, and he says, give me your other hand. I can't hold you, right? Um, and her very life is at stake, uh, but she can't see it because she's in the moment. She can't see it. She can almost reach it. This this thing that she wants is just out of her grasp, and I love the way the actress has this wild-eyed look in her eyes that she's trying to get this thing. She wants to hold on to it. She wants to make it hers. She's warned about the danger. The allure is just too much for her. And the thing that's interesting is that Indiana can see it, He's just far enough removed from it that he knows that her life is in peril. He knows that she needs to let it go and give him his other hand so that she can be saved. He can see that, uh, but she ignores the warning and falls to her death, right? And that's what I love about Spielberg. So just when you get through that incredible scene and you just your, your, your emotions are barely understand that she's down in the chasm dead, and, and boom, another tremor comes and uh, Indiana Jones is, is flipped. He's in the exact same position she was in. And with his father holding his hand. And here's where the scene really speaks to me because he's now within an inch of his life. He's, he is facing the exact same circumstances as Elsa's. And what was his first response? Same as hers. Yeah, I can get it. And you can see Spielberg does a great, he's actually touching it now. She couldn't quite touch it. His arm's just a little bit longer and, he's just, and, he, and he can just touch it. Um, but and why do you think that is? Why only thing that's changed is his position. Why, but but why has his his understanding of the circumstances changed? Yeah. No perspective. Yeah, that's great. He's in the moment himself. And, and isn't this true about us? When it was her reaching for it, we could look at that other person and say, no, no, that's not good for you. You shouldn't do that. But when it's us reaching for it, we don't have the perspective maybe. And uh, ultimately, though, he makes a good decision. And what allows him to make the good decision? What's the turning point in the scene? The father. When the father does what? Calls him by his name. And everything changes. Spielberg's pretty good, isn't he? That's really good stuff. Um, the father extends his hand, offers grace, calls him by. That's really grace for him. It's the first time he got grace from his father. He calls him by the name that he wants to be called. Um, and just like us, when the father calls us by name, we respond. So I want you to watch this tent this time one more time, quick through because it's a really short thing. You'll see, you'll pick up on those. You'll see some other things, and then we'll we'll let it run through, and you'll get to see the father son debrief at the end. Go ahead.
Indiana. Indiana. Okay, so Elsa, he said, you know, Elsa um, uh, never really believed in Grail. She thought she'd found a prize. Boy, that that we could go on a whole other direction about that. Uh, you, you see that often, and we do that in our lives. But I love this. What did you find, Dad? And he says, illumination. Sean Connery, illumination. Um, you know, we have to listen for the Father's voice. Otherwise, we'll be grasping for things that are of temporal value more often than things that are of eternal value. And uh, his father had looked for, uh, had start, had made this his life work, search for the grail. Uh, and so he found illumination when he finally got there. For us, our illumination comes really from Scripture. Uh, it should come from Scripture. Um, so let's quickly look at several passages might shed some light on how uh, God's grace impacts and informs us as it relates to our money. Uh, and I want to do this in, in, a, in a, a framework of three, th- three questions. Whose money is it anyway? Second question, what we must not do, what must we not do, okay? Because for me, a lot of times, it's more instructive to first know what I'm not supposed to do, uh, and then I can, I can, I can uh, make the conversion over what I should do. And then finally, what can we do with our anxieties as it relates to um, our, our own provision and money and, and those kinds of things? So whose money is it anyway? If you look at that first uh, 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 scriptural reference to First Chronicles uh, chapter 29, this is at the end of David, King David's life, and he looks at the whole <coughs> solemn assembly of Israel, the people that God has set apart as his people, and here's what David chooses to say to remind them that there's that uh, the Lord's is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and majesty. All that is in heavens, heaven and earth, Lord, is yours. Riches and honor come from you. All things come from thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Um, the question for us today, I think, is this. And it's, it's not a silly question. Do we really believe it? Not corporately, but do you individually, do each one of us individually, do we really believe that everything comes from God? Do we believe it down to the to the, 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 the pedestrian nature of writing the check for our mortgage or for the power bill or for the groceries, that that came from God? Okay, Is there a, a direct connection? Not just a spiritual connection, but a very direct connection. And I think it's a very important question. Um, um, 
And I think for a lot of people, and for myself included, sometimes that's hard to believe. Why is it hard to believe? Does anybody else struggle with that at all? That it very clearly, this check that I'm writing, this dollar that I'm paying, this, you know, that it, it really, why is that hard to believe? Because you, you earned it. There's a direct tie in there. Feels like mine. Feels like yours. <laughs> Martin Luther said that there are three conversions a Christian has to go through. Conversion of the heart, conversion of the mind, and conversion of the purse. And you know, if I'd have heard that 30 years ago, I would not have understood it. Intellectually, I'd say, okay, yeah, right, right, right. But on this side of my own faith journey, oh my gosh, it's piercing because it's true. And for some of us, the order's a little different. For me, the way I process things, for me it was a conversion of my mind first and then my heart. For others, it goes the other way. It's a conversion of the heart first, and then you learn your mind gets converted as well. But I've never seen where it's a conversion of the purse first. Right? And then the mind of the heart follows, right? It doesn't seem to work that way. Um, so this question of whose money is it anyway, anyway, I think is a very important question. And Scripture is very, very clear about this all the way through. Um, and the reason it's, it's so important, I think, is that if we don't get that one right individually, then we're going to be continually struggling with this issue. It's like trying to lay a foundation on a house when you don't know how large the house is going to be or how tall it's going to be. You have to keep coming back and fighting that battle. Because like Jane says, it feels like mine. Well, it's going to feel like yours over and over again until this issue is settled in our lives. We're going to continue fighting that battle. So I would just suggest that that's a, that's a question, whose money is it anyway, that we really have to individually have this conversion of the person make a, make a, 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 and, and, and understand that. Uh, I heard a guy this week, I think Henry heard him uh, too, this past week. Uh, it was a very interesting little throwaway comment he made. This particular individual, as he's retired, but as a part of this job that he has now, uh, he, uh, he helps um, uh, manage and distribute people's charitable donations, wealthy donors, charitable don everybody's charitable donations that are willing to come to him for that. And he was talking about this year-end charitable report that he has. It's a brand-new report, and it kind of shows everything on one page, a dashboard kind of thing. And he said he was going over this with two of his clients recently. And one of them was a client that had given away over $400,000 in the previous year. And here it was all on one page. And the client looked at it and said, well, this is really great. All on one page exactly shows me all the detail that I need. I didn't realize this was so much. I can't wait to show this to my wife. She's going to be so excited. And then he went to this other client and showed him the same report. And this client, too, had given away a sizable amount of money. It ended up being over $100,000. And he looked at it and said the same thing. He said, he said, this is really a great report. It's got everything right there. I didn't realize how much I'd given away, but I better not show this to my wife. She'll kill me. <laughs> right? And I would suggest that the root cause of the difference in those two responses is this first question. Whose money is it anyway? That's the root cause between the difference there. Okay, so uh, that's one, that's one uh, uh, suggestion. The other suggestion, the second one is this question of what must we not do? What can't we do? And um, I want you to look at that second passage in Galatians there. And this one is not one that's typically uh, 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 one that's, that deals with money, people talking about money. But I just have to tell you, I was reading this on Wednesday, and it, um, I just felt like that I needed to cover this in this class. I didn't even think I was teaching this class on Thursday. On Wednesday, Jane was supposed to be teaching this class, and I read this passage, and I thought, you know, I really I felt like the Holy Spirit nudged me to, to talk about this. Um, there's so much to be discussed here. This is about slaves. 
and um, uh, sonship. Um, what's going on? Take a quick look at it. What's, we won't take time to read it, but just read it for yourself there. What's going on in verses 1 through 7? What is Paul telling the Galatians? In 1 through 3, what's he talking about? Verses 1 through 3. Saying that before Christ came, we were slaves to the law. That's right. That's right. We were slaves to the law. And remember, he's talking to, to uh, uh, Jewish, now Jewish Christians in Galatia. And there have been Judaizers that have come back and said, you need to start doing things like all the food uh, laws. You need to come back and you need to have circumcision, these kind of things. And he's telling them that we're no longer, this is what our life looked like before. We were slaves to the law. Okay. And in verse 4 through 7, what's he talking about? Yeah. That we're no longer slaves. Once we were slaves... And now we're sons. And we're not just sons, we're adopted sons. Look at verses 4 and 5. God's purpose was both to redeem and adopt. Not just to rescue them from slavery, but think about that. I'm going to rescue you from slavery, but then I'm going to make you my adopted son. So once we were sons and daughters of the very living God, why? uh, once we were slaves and now we're sons and daughters of the very living God, why in the world would we turn back to the old slavery? Now, this is a little bit of a, of a stretch for us as 21st century Western Christians, I think, because we don't really think of ourselves as slaves. We're not culturally, that hadn't been a part of, of uh, our, our life experience for the mo- most part. And I think this, too. I think for most 21st century uh, Christians in the Western world, we don't think too much about being slaves to the Old Testament law, right? We don't really think about that. But we can think very clearly about being slaves to idols, being a slave to something that we care so much about that it gets between us and God. Being a slave to something that so controls our lives um, that it causes a, a problem in our relationship uh, with God. Yep. She was willing to give up her life for that, wasn't she? And it can be any number of things. But today we're talking about money, and it is a kind of all-encompassing kind of thing that everybody, because we all have needs and, and money. You know, Tim Keller, I wish I could remember exactly how he said it, but it was a throwaway thing in a sermon that I heard maybe two years ago. And he, it, I'm going to say it wrong, but get the, the gist of it. The gist of it is he was, he was saying, you know, he does a lot of apologetics, and he was saying, you know, if you look at all the great world religions, he said, if I wasn't a Christian, if I didn't believe in Jesus Christ, I think what I would choose is to worship money. And he says, and here's the reason why. Because it comes closer to delivering on what it promises than any other religion in the world. And I, I heard that and I thought about, I grew up in Memphis and I didn't have southern grandmothers, but I, I had friends that had them. And I remember one southern grandmother saying, oh, honey, money can't buy you happiness, but it can get you ever so exquisitely close. <laughs> and I was little, but I understood the concept, you know. Um, and so, um, so we don't have to, my point here about we've now been freed, 
this may not have happened to you, but oh Lord, it happened to me. I think it can happen to so many Christians. So now we understand the gospel and we understand, we start to begin to understand whose money it is anyway. And the Holy Spirit starts to convict us, start chiseling away little bit by bit in that terribly private area that we would never tell anybody, our money and how we spend it. And some of us, me, go back to being slaves. Okay, tell me what the rules are. What are the rules about money? What am I supposed to do here? I'm now uncomfortable. God is making me uncomfortable with the power of his spirit. I got to do something about money. So what? I hate I hate this, but I'm, I'm committed. What do I need to do about it? So a slave like me would go back to the Old Testament, which I never had read before, and what would I think about money? What would the Old Testament teach me? What do I need to do? 10%. Right? So I think what this passage tells us, what it told me this week was, don't go back to being a slave. This is what not to do. As the Holy Spirit begins to convict us in our lives of what we do with our money that has been given to us by God, okay? If your first response is to go back to the Old Testament standard, I don't think you should go there. Three reasons why. First is you may not really realize what it is you're committing to. So what is it? Let's get a percentage on it. 10%. All right, do I hear anything more than 10%? <coughs> Above and Victor, what do you think? Well, having taken a course at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, My plant. <laughs> the standard, if you go back and really look at the Old Testament, and I've got a wonderful piece, if anybody's interested, it's about 40%. About 40%. When it's all said and done, and guess what? The Bible's kind of silent on gross or net. <laughs> so I think that we, ha we, can, we can make a reading on that that it's gross. 40% of gross. So I don't think we want to go back to the law. If we go back to that law, it is so demanding. And that's not what we're called to be. We're adopted sons and daughters. We don't need to go there. So you don't want to go there. I think what not to do is go there because it's demanding. Now here's the problem. The New Testament teaches us not tithes, a 10% tithe, but what does it teach us? about money as it relates to giving, not just about management, but giving. What? Liberally. Liberally, okay. It's called sacrificially. It's called proportionate giving. Give to you proportionally as God has, give, give back as God has proportionally given you. Oh my gosh, proportional giving is a lot higher standard than a 40% standard if you really think about it. Okay. So uh, without grace, without being adopted sons and daughters, that is, that's even worse than the law, if you think about it. Okay? So what we, we, we can't do is we can't go back to the law uh, because, uh, first of all, we may not know what we're getting into for. The second is that it, it, if, we, if we treat it as law, it's even more demanding and, uh, uh, and it just will crush us, I think. It sets us up, more importantly, though, if we start to get there, I think it sets us up for the danger of being self-righteous start to feel really good about what we're doing and that's what the you know when, when jesus came it was all about the pharisees the keepers of the law the externals you know we feel really good about that um and so i think that's uh, going back to the law that that would be a little dangerous and but here's the real thing if we go back to the law we miss the blessing we miss the blessing that god has for us in this important uh and critical area of our lives and how we manage our money i'm going to talk about that here just in just a second um ultimately comes down to what martin luther said uh, we need a conversion of the purse, and conversion always calls us to be faithful and to trust. 
You know, it's kind of like, oh gosh, I got to trust. I got to be faithful in this in this area as well. Um, and and that takes us to our last point of, uh, with the scripture here, and that would be Matthew 6:25 and 33. And that is, if we're going to be faithful, we're going to trust. We have to go through the uh, the path of anxiety. You know, as we let go, there's some anxiety of, of I'm letting go of control. What will happen if? How in the world am I going to do this? What about this? What about that? So many competing things for our resources. Uh, how can we do that? And, um, and so the third point is, so what can we do with our anxieties? It, it's, it suggests that we're going to have anxieties about this. So what do we do with them? And I read a sermon recently. It was a small sermon. It was actually, it was actually a, a talk to local businessmen that C.H. Uh, Spurgeon gave, gave. And he even at the very front said, this, I know it's a local business group, uh, but you'll have to know that most of my talks end up sounding like sermons. So it really was a sermon on this, on this particular passage. And, and, um, and there's so much here for our purpose today. Uh, Henry, would you mind just can you read through the whole thing? That section, please. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit of his life to the span of life? Why are you anxious about clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so closes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He seeks, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Thank you, Henry. So much to be uh, talked about here, but I want to focus just really on uh, what this has to say about our anxieties. In this sermon that Spurgeon, uh, the, the surgeon spoke at the very outset, he he just didn't give these business guys a way out. He says, look. Uh, 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 there is uh, while well, it's, well, it's human to be anxious, and you can say, "I know it's just human." Christ's words here are plain and binding. Do not be anxious about your life. So that's the way he set them up. Okay, we got to deal with that. And Spurgeon goes on to say three things about fretful anxiety that I think are helpful. He says, "Fretful anxiety is needless. Fretful anxiety is useless, and fretful anxiety is heathenish." a word that we don't use quite so often today, but uh, needless, useless, and, he and heathenish. Here's what he says. If you look at verse 26, he's kind of saying this about needless. I'm going to quote him directly because you can't do better than this. He says, If we have a Father in heaven that cares for us, are we not put to shame by every little bird that sits on the bough and sings, though it has not two grains of barley in the world? God takes charge of the fowls of the air. And thus, they live exempt from care. Why do we not? It's needless, he says. The second thing he says is that it's useless. And he kind of focuses on verse 27 there. Spurgeon says, with all of our care, we cannot add a cubit to our stature. Can we do anything else by fretful care? It were infinitely wiser to do our best and then cast our care upon God. Prudence is wisdom. For it adapts means to ends, 
but anxiety is folly, for it groans and worries and accomplishes nothing. I don't know who said it first, but I heard this. And I, boy, is it true for me? He said, you know, when you worry, you're just praying to yourself. Think about that. Don, you're worrying, aren't you? Yeah, just praying to yourself. Well, I don't want to pray to myself. That was real clear for me. I can't do anything about it. That's why I'm worried. <laughs> so it's needless. Our anxieties are needless, Spurgeon says. He says that when you look at what Christ is saying here about our value, that it's useless. And then he says it's heathenish. And he's talking about, you know, Paul is talking about the Gentiles here in verses 31 and 32. And he says, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. They have no God and no providence, and therefore they're trying to be a providence to themselves. And what Spurgeon is saying is, there it is again. We're heirs. If you look, at, if you look back at Galatians, it said we're heirs of God. And the heir has right to everything that the master has, the father has. And yet we don't act like it, we don't live like it, and so we live just like the heathens, in, in the terminology used by Spurgeon. Um, he says, uh, shouldn't we as heirs of heaven live differently than those who have their portion only in this life, without God and without hope? And it's the whole point of this subject matter of the class. How then shall we live? You know, If grace doesn't leave us where it finds us, and it moves us, how then shall we live? And, and, and the, the idea, obviously, is that we should live differently, not because we're any better in and of ourselves, not because we're more righteous uh, than anybody else, but because of what Jesus says here in this passage. He says this. If you paraphrase it, he says, we're valuable. He says, I know your needs, and I will take care of your needs. Notice that he says needs and not wants. There is a difference. All right? Take care of your needs, not your wants. Um and then Spurgeon ends this great sermon, I think, with a, with a very positive note. He says, look, you're going to have anxieties. Let's put them in the right direction. Why don't you, uh, he encourages us to let the anxieties run in the right direction, to apply our anxieties to a useful purpose. And look at what it is. Look at verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He's saying, take all of your anxious energy and apply it to seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. He's saying, take all of your uh, uh, anxious heart, all of your heart, and chase after this, his kingdom and his righteousness. Be anxious about that. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of this week, I hadn't thought about this story in a long time. It happened to me 20 years ago. I'm uh, pulling onto the, I'm trying to merge onto Red Mountain Expressway right there from English Village, you know, Diaper Row. And um, building up speed, looking over my left shoulder to see if it's safe to get by, and I see a ladybug hanging on to my driver's side windshield. And, you know, ladybugs are one of God's beautiful creations. If you look at them at rest, they're, they're beautiful. They're round. They're kind of orange. they got those funny little dots on them. You don't, don't usually see their wings or their little spindly legs, you know, but they're really pretty. But that wasn't the case for this ladybug that was on my windshield. She was holding on with her little spindly legs. And as I increased my speed, you could see that the wings were coming out. Not because she was trying to fly, but just the airflow was causing her wings to come out. And her body was distorted. She looked ugly. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know where this is going to end up. <laughs> you know, I'm about 45 miles an hour. I'm going to be about 70 and not too terribly long. Because that's a good spot there right on the highway to 70. Um, and, uh, and, and the thought occurred to me. God has provided for this ladybug. She's got wings. Just fly. Let go. Those spindly little legs are not going to hold on to that slick glass as I increase my spin. As a matter of fact, the faster you make this decision, the better it is for you. If you wait too late, 
probably not going to end well for the ladybug. All right? But if, if, if God has provided for that little ladybug. I've got these uh, hollies outside of my window at work. And twice a year, the birds come and feed off of these berries. And they bang up against the windows. You know, they get drunk on the, the fermentation of the, of the berries and stuff. They bang up against the windows. But I'm sitting there on the phone one day in a real business conversation, so totally not thinking about what I should be thinking about, thinking about business working. And it just dawns on me. God gives me a little God moment. said, you know, this building's probably 30 years old, and some landscaper put these hollies here. And these birds, who are bird brains, you know, have come here, and they come back every year to feed on these hollies. The, the perfect provision of the Lord. Even the birds of the air. And here I am at work worrying about how am I going to make money, in the words of my uh, 10-year-old daughter. <laughs> how are you going to make money, Dad? You know, God provides. So um, just some things to think about. The first question is, whose money is it anyway? Think about in your own, you've got to answer that question, I think. We all do. I think we've all got to answer the question of what we shouldn't do. If your instinct is not to go back towards the law, not a problem for you. If you're like me and you want lists and rules and comparisons, it could be a problem. And that's not where uh, uh, the Lord wants us, I don't believe. And the final thing is we're going to have anxiety, so what do we do with those? Um, and, and this is something that, you, that I just really encourage us to all to, uh, uh, to work through because giving is, and our money is one of the most tangible examples um, of our willingness to trust God in our lives. It really is. There are other areas that all of us have had where we've had to trust God. But here is an ongoing. We, we need money yesterday. We need it today. We're going to need it 20 days from now, five years from now. It's an ongoing opportunity to trust God in our lives and then to acknowledge our total and complete dependence on Him. Here's the thing. In a crowd of this size, I'm going off script here, dangerous. In a crowd of this size, there are some number of you that this is just going to hit you in the forehead and ping off. Okay? And that's okay. It's, then it's not time for you. All right? There's some smaller number of you that, that you may have been thinking about this, and this is the right time to really start to work through this and, and, and deal with this. And for others of you, the Holy Spirit is attempting to convict you in this point. Okay, So it just doesn't matter. Wherever you are, I would uh, uh, suggest that you continue to follow the Spirit's leading on this because it's a very, very difficult thing. There is no sacred or secular divide in, in our lives as Christians, and there certainly isn't one with money. Uh, scripture doesn't show that. We make that. Yeah. Uh, the Indiana, going back to Indiana Jones, that reminded me of uh, Great Gatsby. Hmm. And I think that's what was so brilliant. Fitzgerald, you know, he's talking about I was within and without. Yep. Judge and judge that he can, you know, he and Zelda were the, they named the Jazz Age. They were the number one couple of all the parties and things. But he was also the artist and he could sit back as Nick Carraway and we could, we could feel the charm, the allure of all yep. those great parties and say, I've had students say, where do I sign up? I mean, yeah. this sounds great, $10,000 for a party and stuff. But then Fitzgerald is the craftsman can say you're, you're paying too much for your whistle. Yep. If, it's, if it's destroying you and when you sober up 10 years from now, you'll, you'll have lost the best decade. Yep. And so he could you know, get us with, close enough to feel the charm, but far enough away to That's a great point. Yeah. terrible idea. Yeah, which I think is one of the great things about artists, creative types, whether their medium is the written word or whether it's art or whatever. They are all keen observers of human nature and the human condition. And so most of them, they get closer to it than the rest of us get, and they can observe it. Okay. And what's really sad, I think, is in so many of their lives, if they don't come up with the answer, the answer, okay, then they come to the real conclusion of, that, you know, what's it all about? This is all folly. 
um, that if you don't come, to, they understand human nature and our need for redemption and our need to be adopted. But if they don't understand the solution, it, it, it sometimes ends badly in, in addiction and alcohol and suicide and depression, all sorts of things. Um, well, I would say this. Let me just close with uh, Spurgeon uh, at, at for the whole for the whole class, not just for money. He said something. This was in his this was in his um, um, sermon that I read this week. He says, we are called to be saints, not miraculous beings to be put up in niches and admired, but men and women who flavor our ordinary lives with grace so that our wives, husbands, children, neighbors, colleagues, co-workers are better for it. And that's what we're really talking about here. Grace doesn't leave us where it finds us. Uh, it moves us out of our area of comfort and all the day-to-day areas of our lives and whatever area that the Holy Spirit might be working on your life. It's moving you. It's chipping off those things that don't look like Christ, because here's what's really cool. He's coming back. You heard it in the sermon today. Now, we may have gone on to our glory before then. Not quite our glory. We may have died before then. But he's coming back. And um, then we'll be made in the likeness of him completely and fully. So that's a that's a wonderful... Um, God, what a great thing to look forward to. You guys would... would Get excited about and plan and think about your trip to Disney World when you've got kids or your trip to Paris or whatever, right? Well, we got the trip of a lifetime coming. You know, so that's a whole other thing to think about. Uh, let's pray. Father, we're grateful that uh, you did not leave us here to try to understand these things uh, by ourselves, that you've given us, Lord God, uh, first your counselor, the Holy Spirit, to uh, convict us, Lord God, and uh, to move us in the direction that you would have us move. Father, we're also thankful that you didn't leave us to find these truths out by ourselves you've given us this church you've given us the wisdom of the ages you've given us uh, our clergy and staff and great teaching and preaching uh, so that we can uh, read learn and inwardly digest your word and that lord god is what we're most thankful for your your holy scripture that uh, we can go to it for illumination father in all the areas of our lives where we're struggling and all the areas of our lives lord god where you would like to chip off that that doesn't look like your son And then replace it, Father, uh, with uh, goodness and mercy and loving kindness that you wish for all of us. Thank you, Lord, for this church, for these people, and for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.